So my name is Mike. I serve as lead pastor here at our Center City Congregation of City Light Church. And this past week, our denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the organization of churches of which we're a part, uh, sent me to Florida to a conference with some other pastors. And as I was talking with my wife about it, she reminded me that, I think you say it Ponce de Leon, is it Ponce or Ponce, you know, whatever. But that guy um, was the first European to discover Florida. Now, I'm, when she told me that, I, re- I thought to myself, you know, I've, I know I've heard that before. I read that in a book somewhere, elementary school, probably memorized it, but I didn't remember it. It doesn't make much impact on my life. You know, I'm not from Florida. I don't have family there. Um, on the other hand, I can tell you the name of the town doctor from Gerardville, Pennsylvania, population 1,454, from about 1940 to 1970. That's pretty impressive, right? That's a history buff. Well, I can tell you his name because he was my grandfather. I have a personal connection to him. And so his life had a massive impact on my life today. We've been going through the Apostles' Creed on Sunday mornings, as you heard us say earlier. It's kind of an ancient summary of Christian doctrine. And especially recently, we've been talking about a lot of facts of history in the Apostles' Creed. We've said that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And it's possible for those facts of history about Jesus Christ to be to you like the fact that Ponce de Leon was the first European to discover Florida. If it remains outside of you, if you have no personal connection to Christ, all those facts of history have no power to change your life. Well, today we come to the part of the Apostles' Creed where we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes and forges the personal connection between you and Jesus Christ, between the facts of his life, that history, and your life so that it actually changes you. So who is this Holy Spirit? How does he do this work? I believe in the Holy Spirit, and we'll see he proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is the Spirit of truth who will be in you forever, and who gives you peace. So first, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. In the passage that we just read, verse 16 kind of begins our introduction to the Holy Spirit. And we see there that the Spirit uh, comes from both the Father and the Son. So Jesus, the Son, is the one who asks the Father, and the Father is the one who then sends the Spirit. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says he will send the Spirit, and he describes the Spirit as the one who proceeds from the Father. So proceeds, present tense, means that the Spirit does not begin to proceed when Jesus sends him, but that he exists and proceeds eternally. So the Nicene Creed, which is an expansion on the Apostles' Creed, says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you remember back to when we talked about Jesus Christ and his identity, we said that he was begotten but not made, eternally generated by the Father, but not a part of God's creation. Well, now we see that the Holy Spirit is also not a part of God's creation, but eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, as to the difference between begetting and proceeding, we don't have a lot of detail on that from the Bible. We can't say too much about it. But what we do know is that while the Son can send the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't send anyone else. There will never be a fourth person in God. The upshot of it, though, is that the Holy Spirit is God, just as the Father is God, just as the Son is God. And yet, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. 
Jesus says to his disciples, at this point in John, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's preparing to die. And he's preparing his disciples for what life will be like after he departs. So he says what he's going to do is he's going to send another helper. Verse 16 says, and he calls this helper the spirit of truth or the Holy Spirit in verse 26. But the point is, it's not, he's not staying, right? He literally is going to go away and he's going to send another helper that's not him. And yet, this other helper, to really be another helper like Jesus, has to be equal to Jesus, fully God, just as he is. So the Spirit is fully God. There's one God, but the Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. This gets us into another important Christian doctrine called the Trinity. In the Trinity, we, we believe, we confess, that God is one God, eternally existing in three persons. So it's not tritheism. There's three gods. It's also not modalism. There's one God who kind of puts on the Father hat sometimes, puts on the Son hat other times, puts on the Holy Spirit hat other times. They really exist. The the Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And there's only one God. Now, how can that all be true? I don't know. I really don't. It's a a mystery, really. But welcome to the worship of an infinite being. These kinds of things necessarily come up if you're finite and he's not. It's not a logical contradiction. It's possible that God can be one God eternally existing in three persons. But it's also not logically explainable. We don't know how it's true. We confess it as true, even though we understand that that we don't entirely understand it. When we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So whoever the Spirit is, though, he is God. And whatever the Spirit does, he does as God. With all the omnipotence, with all the wisdom, with all the omniscience, eternity, independence of God himself. Nothing is too hard for God, so nothing is too hard for the Spirit, which means if the Holy Spirit is your helper, which is how Jesus describes him in this passage, you have an infinite source of power, an infinite source of strength on which to draw. Do you have pains in your life that you feel like could never be healed? Your helper is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. Do you have mistakes in your life that still haunt you today that you feel like you could never be free from? Your helper is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. Do you have sin patterns that you still struggle with today, habits that you still struggle with today that you think you could never be free from? Your helper is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. There is nothing that he cannot do in your life. Nothing. And yet, because he's God, There's also nothing you can make him do in your life. He's just as sovereign as God the Father, just as sovereign as God the Son. We're just as dependent on him. Like Jesus, the other helper in this passage, he gives us the help we need, not necessarily the help we want. And to understand kind of what that help is and how he helps us, it'll help us if we see a little more about who he is, okay? So let's look at this next description of him. When Jesus describes him in verse 17 as the spirit of truth, he is the spirit of truth. You know, I've sometimes heard Christians say, okay, you want to study the truth, you go right ahead, enjoy your ivory tower. I'm here for the Spirit. I want the anointing of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. I want to operate in the power of the Spirit. And that's all well and good. But the question is, what Spirit is it that you're desiring, that you're wanting to be filled with? If it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And what God has joined together, no man should separate. If you can remember, um, 
Well, let me say this. The Holy Spirit, again, he gives us the help that we need, not necessarily the help we want, right? So we may want an experience of God outside of the truth, but what the Spirit does is he actually leads us into the truth. He enables us to believe it, and he gives us an experience of it. So in John 14, 26, the passage that we're looking at here, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If you were with us in January, and you can remember back that far, we looked at John chapter 8 earlier in this same book of the Bible, where Jesus tells his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Saying, remain in my word. But the question is, where do we find Jesus' word if he's not here bodily on earth? Well, speaking to those disciples and preparing them for that day, he says, here's where you'll find my word. I will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you and will bring back to your remembrance the things that I said to you. Now, consider the setting, right? Jesus is speaking to these disciples who he's been with for three years, to whom he has spoken audibly. And he says, the Spirit will bring back to your memory the things that I've said to you. Now, that promise has application to us, but only indirectly. The Spirit can't call back to your memory the things that Jesus said to you on earth because you weren't with Jesus on earth. The first people this promise is directed to are the disciples that actually lived with him and heard him speak audibly. He's saying to them, I'm going to give you my spirit who will be in you, who will teach you all things, and who will bring back to your remembrance the things that I said to you. And then what those disciples did is they took those things that the spirit was bringing back to their memory, and they wrote them down for us in the Bible, in books like the Gospel According to John that we're looking at today. Which means, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, you must also believe in the Bible. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must be filled with the Bible. It is the truth that the Holy Spirit taught Jesus' first disciples and called back to their memory, recorded for us so that it might be brought to us as well. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now I have to tell you, the word in Greek and in Hebrew for spirit is the same word as the word for breath and the word for wind. So when 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God, it's saying scripture is the truth that comes to us by the Holy Spirit, who is himself the breath of God in the most literal sense of the word. 2 Peter 1.21 says no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you one more example. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. It says, be filled with the Spirit. There you go, Holy Spirit again. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 3, 16 to 17 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, those two passages, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, they sound very similar. They're talking about very similar things. This giving thanks in your heart, this addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But the one difference between them is that one starts with the command, be filled with the Spirit. The other starts with the command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So which is it? 
Should you be filled with the Spirit? Should you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? And of course, the answer is yes. The Spirit and the Word are not the same thing, but the Spirit and the Word work together in our lives. If you want these results to come, he's saying, be filled with the Spirit and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truth by giving us the Bible. He works in and through the Word. But if the work of the Spirit ended there, the truth would still remain outside of you. It'd still be facts, right? Who founded Florida? The Spirit doesn't end there. He not only brings the truth to you, He enables you to believe it, and He gives you an experience of it. The thing that's tricky about truth is that truth imposes itself on you. It's not like an opinion. I met someone this past week who actually likes cold weather. Maybe you do. I don't don't get that, okay? He likes cold weather. That's his opinion. No reason that my opinion, I like warm weather, has to force itself on him. And no reason that his opinion has to force itself on me. But if it's 20 degrees outside, it's cold, whether I like it or not. That forces itself on me, right? Truth does that. So when you come to the Bible, if you're being honest with it, you're going to have experiences that make you say, oh, man, I don't, I don't want to do that or stop doing whatever this passage is saying. Wait, 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 wait a second. This, this doesn't sound like what I believe or what my parents told me to believe or what my church believed growing up. Um, that sounds offensive. That sounds downright regret. You know, you're going to have these experiences with the Bible. And the temptation in moments like that is going to be to change it, going to be to ignore it, going to be to pretend it's not saying what it clearly is saying. Well, the Spirit, part of the help the Spirit gives is he softens us, he humbles us to receive what the Bible actually is saying and to assent to its truth, to believe it. And it doesn't even end there. We assent to the truth, and then the Spirit actually gives us an experience of it. So the Colossians text that I quoted earlier commands us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. It's not, just a, it's not merely an intellectual endeavor. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. He enables us to believe the truth, but he gives us an experience of it, enabling you to sense the glory of what is written. When you are filled with the spirit of truth, when you're really filled with the spirit, you go from saying, I don't have any clue what's true, to, all right, fine, I see it saying that, but I'm not going to believe that, to, okay, I believe it, but I don't like it, to finally, wow, that's amazing, that's glorious, that's beautiful. So the Spirit tells us in Scripture that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and then he convinces you of the truth and then gives you an experience of it so that God's power actually becomes glorious, enjoyable to you, such that you praise him for it. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, uh, described an experience like this, this experience, using the language of wind gusts. Um, He probably did that to make an allusion to the Holy Spirit, right? The, the, The gust, the wind, we've seen those are the same words. So this is what he says. He says, in this gust and relish lies the sweetness and satisfaction of spiritual life. Speculative notions about spiritual things when they are alone are dry, sapless, and barren. In this gust, we taste by experience that God is gracious and that the love of Christ is better than wine or whatever else hath the most grateful relish unto a sensual appetite. 
This is the proper foundation of that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory. So he's saying it's possible to have a dry, sapless, and barren knowledge of the truth. It's possible to know the truth concerning Christ, the truth of the Bible, the way you know who the first European to find Florida was, in a way that makes no impact on your life and that doesn't change you. It's also possible to look for an experience of God apart from the truth. But the Spirit guards us from these pitfalls. He leads us to the truth of the Bible. He enables us to believe it, and he enables us to sense the glory of it. And he can do all that because he is in you. Third thing we'll see about the Spirit. He will be in you forever. So as verse 17 continues, Jesus says, The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because it neither sees him nor knows him. And then speaking to his disciples, he says, you do know him. Not because you see him. They don't see him either. The Spirit's God, right? He's invisible. So you can't feel him. You can't touch him. You can't taste him. You can't smell him. What's the fifth sense? I did this a few weeks ago too. I, I, I mean, here, right? Yes, audibly, yes. So that doesn't happen, right? Uh, he's he's um, invisible. Nonetheless, he says to his disciples, you do know him. You do know him. Because he dwells with you and will be in you. So he says he dwells with you. He's, he's active among you. He was working among the disciples anyway. But he says a day is coming when the Spirit will not only be with you, but he will actually be inside of you. In verse 19, we get a little more insight into what that day is. Jesus says, in the day when he lives, his disciples too will live. Now, Jesus is alive when he's speaking this. What's he talking about? He's talking about when he rises from the dead. Saying, when I rise from the dead, I will pour out my spirit. And the same spirit that gave life to my dead body will give life to you and will communicate the resurrection life of Jesus to you. See, if he's God and he's full of power, has all the power of God himself, but he remains outside of you, there's a limit to what he can do in your life. Not because of his power, but because of the distance between you. So if the Spirit wants to help you, but he's outside of you, what can he do to help you? He can change your circumstances, change anything in your life, which is all most of us want a lot of the time because we think that's the only way we can be helped. But if the Spirit is in you, not only can he change your circumstances, he can actually change you. He can make you into a fundamentally different person. If you struggle with a persistent sin or bad habit, as we, as we talked about earlier, how can the Spirit help you? Well, he could remove the temptation, but he doesn't always do that. There's another option. If he's in you, he can actually change you. And so he does. He brings the truth to you. He enables you to believe it. He gives you an experience of it. And in doing that, you become a different person. You don't have to keep doing the things that you've always done. You can actually change. In fact, if the Holy Spirit is in you, it will be impossible for you not to change. It's what he does. It's what he's doing in every Christian. When a disparity between your life today and the life you envision for yourself or your ideal life comes up, you don't have to walk the familiar path of despair. The Spirit may not close that gap and just change your life today. But he works in you joy with the life that God has assigned you. When you're out with friends and you just want to fall back and be one of the guys or one of the ladies and fit in, and you know having a few more drinks would really help you do that, and they're all expecting you to do it anyway, 
You don't have to walk down that familiar path. The Spirit may not remove the temptation, but He works in you self-control and enables you to love the people you're around more than you want to be loved by them and do whatever it takes to fit in with them. When an opportunity to serve another person for their joy, to increase their joy comes along, and all you can think about is all the stuff you have to get done for you, you don't have to walk the familiar path of selfishness. The Spirit may not do your to-do list for you, but he works in you trust in your heavenly Father who works even while you're not, who is holding all things together. And he enables you to serve another for their joy even when you're not getting everything done that you wanted to. When you do that, when you act on that, the cool thing is your experience of him is actually enhanced. You may have noticed as we read this passage that obedience comes up a lot in the passage. Jesus says in verse 15, first verse we read, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, in verses 21 and 23, it almost sounds like obedience is the condition for receiving the Spirit by which he'll give it. What he's not saying there is, if you believe in me, I'm not going to give you my Spirit, but if you do some things, then I'll give you the Spirit. No, Jesus is exalted. Everyone who believes in him, the Spirit comes to live inside of them. But what he is saying is, if you don't obey my commandments, your experience of that will be hindered. And if you do obey my commandments, your experience of my love for you, of who I am, will be enhanced. So take, take one of these examples we've already looked at. If you, if you come to Colossians 1.17, it's a verse in the Bible, Holy Spirit gave that by inspiration. It says that in Christ, all things hold together. And the Holy Spirit enables you to believe that, and you get a sense of the glory of it. Wow, every detail of my life held together today by Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You praise him. And then you just go right back to frantically finishing everything on your to-do list. You've just cut off that experience of the truth. You've missed some of the tasting and seeing that God was good. If on the other hand, you say, God, today I really wanted to get a couple more hours of work in, but I see now that I don't actually need to. That Jesus will hold together all things, even when I'm not working on them. And I know that somebody in my city group right now is really struggling. So I'm going to go spend some time with them, and I'm just not going to get those things done today. And you leave them undone. When you do that, when you act on that, when you act on the truth that you've received and you obey, you experience it in a whole new way. You actually get to experience Christ holding all things together because you're, now you're finally not working on them. And your experience of him is enhanced. You you experience him dwelling in you in a new way that you wouldn't if you had just disobeyed that and cut that process off. He can do all of these things because he is in you. And then finally, he gives you peace. In the last verse we read, verse 27, Jesus says um, that in leaving the spirit with them, he's going to the father. And what he's doing actually is he's leaving his peace with them. He says it's a peace not like the peace that the world gives. See, the peace that the world gives is either a circumstantial peace or it's a sentimental peace. So the kind of peace you could have in the world can be a peace based on your circumstances. You say, as long as I have whatever, fill in the blank, I know I'm okay. So as long as I have my significant other and their love, I know I'm okay. Problem is, if you ever lose that, it doesn't just sadden you, it devastates you. Your peace is gone. 
That's the kind of peace the world gives. It's a circumstantial peace. It can be taken away from you in a moment. On the other hand, there's a sentimental peace that the world offers, which is not rooted in our circumstances. It's a more uh, general belief that the universe is benevolent and that things are going to work out for me in the end. In the self-help literature where this kind of thinking tends to be common, the idea is if you just think that enough and you tell yourself that enough, that you will bring it into reality and things will go well for you. The problem with that, of course, is that there is a reality outside of you that you can't just think out of existence. Remember the 20 degrees example? If it's 20 degrees outside, it doesn't matter how much I tell myself it's 80. It's 20. And if I go out there in shorts and a tank top, I'm going to feel the consequences, right? And there's a very specific reason that Jesus does not give that kind of peace to his disciples. Because Jesus actually knows that bad things are going to happen to them. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14, he's about to go be crucified. And what he's told his disciples is, if this is how they treated me, you're not greater than I am. How do you think they're going to treat you? Same things are going to happen to you. He knows bad things are going to happen to them. It doesn't matter. They can't think them out of existence. The power of positive thinking stuff, frankly, works well for people who have a high degree of privilege, high degree of security. But if you're actually under oppression, if you're being persecuted, is the peace you're going to offer that person, hey, think this out of existence. Just tell yourself tomorrow that you're not and you won't be. They need a better peace than that. Jesus' disciples need a better peace than that. They need a peace that's not attached to our circumstances, but that is based in a reality outside of themselves. That's the kind of peace Jesus offers. It's a peace that can look ahead to genuinely bad things. And still, according to Jesus, not be troubled or afraid. It's his peace, as verse 27 says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What is this peace that Jesus has? Where does he get that? He he knows he's going to be crucified. A brutal death, he's about to die. And he's at peace? He's not telling himself, you know, bad things won't happen to me. No, he knows they will. So where does he get this peace, and how does it become yours? The thing he keeps saying, and the thing he says actually in the verse after where we stopped reading, is, I am going to my Father. That's what gives him peace. He's saying, even though I'm facing death, even though I'm facing torment, even though I'm facing pain, I know in the end I am going to my Father. Have you ever done uh, really well on something, really well on a test or, I don't know, project at work? You kind of can't wait to get the result. You're actually looking forward to it. Even though bad things might happen in the meantime, you're looking forward to it. It gives you peace, right? Jesus has that kind of peace. He's saying, I know I've done all things well. I've accomplished the work that my father gave me to do. And even through death, my father will receive me and be pleased with me. It gives him peace because he knows my father loves me. He's pleased with me. It's all going to end with me going, returning to him. Now, the question is, how does that peace become our peace? How does it become your peace? You can try to tell yourself you've done all things well, but that reality thing is going to come back in on that one. If if, if you're dealing in reality, in the truth, you know there's things that you should have done that you left undone. You know there's things that you shouldn't have done that you did. You can't just keep telling yourself, I've always tried to do my best. Say, that's how I know know good things are going to come my way. 
You haven't always. I haven't always. How does his peace become our peace? How can Jesus give you the same peace he has? Well, for all the peace Jesus had in going to the cross, when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, the last place he is before he's taken away and crucified, he's sweating blood. He says his soul is in anguish. He no longer sounds like a man who's done well and is ready to be rewarded. He actually sounds like a man in dread of judgment and of punishment because that's what he became on the cross. Our sins were credited to him so that his righteousness could be credited to us. Jesus can give you his peace because he took your judgment. Even though he knows he's returning to his father, on the cross, the only time in the Bible where Jesus talks to God and doesn't call him his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' peace is removed. Jesus gives up his peace on the cross so that when he received it again at the resurrection, that peace could also become your peace. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Christ has offered to God a perfect righteousness. He has offered to God a full payment for sin. He has risen from the dead and received resurrection life. He is seated at the Father's right hand. But none of that benefits you as long as Christ remains outside of you. So the Holy Spirit brings this truth to you, enables you to believe it, gives you an experience of it, in order that Christ himself might dwell in you. He's the truth. Ultimately, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth that the Spirit brings to you, enables you to believe, and gives you an experience of the glory of. In order that Christ's righteousness might be yours. In order that the payment for sin that he made might count for your sins. In order that the resurrection life might come to live inside of you. In order that you might be with him where he is one day. Thus, Jesus can say of the Spirit in John 16, 14, He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I sometimes hear people say, why do we spend all this time talking about Jesus? We need to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who's always talking about Jesus. Saying, Jesus says, he will glorify me. Remember John 15, 26, we looked at earlier. Jesus says, I will send the Spirit and he will bear witness, not about himself, but about me. That means, if your experience of the truth is lacking today, and I know some of you feel that way, right? You hear me talking about the Spirit shows you the glory of it. And you're like, oh, okay, very mysterious, you know. But I've never experienced that, or at least it's been a very long time since I've experienced that. I'm glad you realize that, first of all, because it is a good thing to desire a greater experience of Christ, a greater vision of his glory. I'd be worried for you if you didn't hunger for that, you didn't thirst for that more. But if that's you... And to some degree, it should be all of us. We should all have this hunger for, of course I want more of the glory of Christ. Of course I want to sense it more than I currently do, to experience that gust that John Owen talked about earlier. You want that. But the way to get it is not going to be by focusing on your lack of experience, by just saying, oh, I just want it, and I don't know, have some kind of weird like urge or um, mystical experience. The experience comes from his testimony to Christ. It comes from the truth itself. So you desire the experience, but you aim at Christ. And don't spend all your time thinking about your lack of experience and how weak you are and how pitiful you 
Spend your time thinking about Christ himself, the one from whom the experience comes. Think about his glory. Meditate on who he is and what he has done. Not even so much what he wants from you or or, or what feelings you should be having, but who he is and what he's done and what he promises. Desire the experience, pray for the experience, but aim at Christ. Make it your goal to know him truly, to love him more purely, to see him for who he is, and the Spirit will bring the experience. By the Spirit, Christ is not only a Savior, a Lord. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. You are personally connected to him. By the Spirit, you have the same peace Jesus has. You know his Father is your Father, and that you are going to him. You know that just as the Father loves the Son, the Father now loves you. You have a connection to Christ, actually, that is more intimate than the connection his disciples had with him when he walked with them on earth. See, I just wish Jesus was here. I could touch him. But if Jesus was here bodily, he wouldn't be in you by the Spirit. You have something better. You have something more intimate. You have a connection to him that far exceeds your connection to Ponce de Leon, even if you're a Floridian. You You have a connection to him that far exceeds my connection to my grandfather even. He had a massive influence on my life, personally connected to him, but I've actually never met him. But if the Spirit is in you, you don't just know about Christ. You know Christ. If the Spirit is in you, you don't just know Christ the way I know some of you. You are in Christ, and he is in you by the Holy Spirit who he has given to you. When the work piles up and your boss is cracking down, you don't have to walk the familiar path of anxiety. The Spirit may not change your circumstance, but he works in you peace. What if you went to work every day knowing what Jesus knew when he went to the cross? That my Father loves me. He loves me with the same love that he has for his own Son. And no matter what happens to me today, I am going to my Father. What if you woke up in the morning and you didn't have a job? And you didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come from. But you knew, my father loves me today with the same love that he has for his own son. And I am going to my father. What if you didn't just know it, but you sensed it? You experienced it. You knew the glory of it. And it was the controlling reality of your life. That's the kind of peace that Jesus gives when he gives of his spirit. The world can't give that. You need it. I need it. Receive it today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit, for sending another helper through your Son to not only be with us, but to be in us, actually, forever. Jesus, you give us a peace that we cannot find in the world by the giving of your Spirit. So we ask today that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We've been um, hearing your truth, Lord. Enable us to believe it. Give us a deep experience of it that we might sense the glory of it. And that we might be filled with the peace that comes as a result of that. I pray you would grant that to all who are present today. In Christ's name, amen.